Welcome to the Maitripa College podcast. Maitripa College is a Buddhist institution of higher education founded by Yangtze Rinpoche in 2005 in Portland, Oregon. We offer two graduate degree programs, a Master of Arts in Buddhist Studies and a Master of Divinity, as well as classical Tibetan language studies. Founded upon the three pillars of scholarship, meditation, and service, the Maitripa College curriculum combines Western academic, contemplative learning, and traditional Tibetan Buddhist disciplines. Through the development of wisdom and compassion, our graduates are empowered with a sense of responsibility to work joyfully for the well-being of others. They become agents of positive change in the world and are shaping the development of Buddhism in the West. As scholar practitioners, chaplains, professional translators, doctoral degree candidates, leaders in the nonprofit world, educators, and more. We invite you to join us to make your practice your life. In this week's episode, during Maitripa College's Friday Night Faculty Talk, visiting teacher Venerable Damcha, Diana Finnegan, teaches on mother, daughter, sex worker, nun, transgressing and transforming gender roles in Buddhist narratives. Good evening. We're going to have a combination of uh, story hour and some reflection on what um, narratives about the lives of the women who interacted directly with the Buddha can tell us about how the life of a Buddhist practitioner was gendered from the start. And just to set the scene, we're in a context where a question that's frequently asked of a woman to identify her, um, say you're walking along and you meet a woman for the first time, a girl or a woman, the first question that you ask is not what's your name or where you're from. The question is, who do you belong to? Whose are you? And in these texts, so the text that I'm primarily working on forms the first 13 volumes in the canon, the Tibetan canon, translated from Sanskrit into Tibetan. And in this context, the answer to the question, who do you belong to, when asked of a woman, is always a man. So the, a man. Mm-hmm. So the range of places that one can find a woman, almost entirely, with very few exceptions here and there, 99.9% of the female characters that you'll find in these narratives, they are either, they either follow the trajectory of who do you belong to? You belong to your father. And you cease to belong to your father when you start belonging to your husband. And if everything goes well at a certain point, you might belong to a son. Okay? That's who you would belong to. That's the main life path. Those who, for some reason, don't follow that life path, 
generally, as we'll see, will be found either in the area of sex worker or begging. So those are the three broad options that were available at that time until the Buddha started making available to women the option of becoming monastics. So we have lots of examples in this set of narratives of women who don't become nuns. They don't become monastics. And with those women, we also see a very interesting way in which the effect of the presence of the Buddha in that community ends up being very empowering to women, even if they never leave the household setting that he connects with them in. And so if we, if we think about what we know about the life of the Buddha, he was a wandering mendicant. He walked around and begged for his food or was offered food as he was passing different houses. Who is making the food and noticing who's at the door looking for food? Primarily women in that context. So the Buddha, on, except when he's formally invited to eat at the home of some prince or leading merchant of the town, he's having these you know, interactions with women. So one story that we can take as our starting point, he approaches the, a house, household, and asks for food, as he does every day of his life. And the way of asking is not knocking on the door and speaking. It's a very non-invasive way that the, the monastics at that time carried a staff that had some metal rings on it that made a jingling sound. And so that would alert the, primarily the woman of the household or whoever was attentive that there was someone who was begging for food. That was a standard practice. So the Buddha would approach the door. And in this case, the woman sees him, wants to offer food, makes an offering of food. And the Buddha tells her, that by the fruit, that the fruit of this offering will ripen in a future lifetime and you will become a Pratyeka Buddha. So there are three different types of enlightened beings in the world of this text and Pratyeka Buddha is one of, it's a form of enlightenment. It is a kind of Buddha. So he's showing her, this woman who's just working in her kitchen and making a donation of food, he's showing her the possibility of being one of the most highly realized spiritual agents that we can imagine. Okay. So this is quite a powerful statement that Buddha has made to her. Word starts to spread. Her husband, who's been out gathering wood for fire, hears of this absolutely enraged. He's infuriated with disbelief. And he goes to the Buddha and he says to the Buddha, have you been to my house? The Buddha says, yes. 
Did you tell my wife that by giving you food from my kitchen, she's going to become a Pratyeka Buddha? He says, yes. He says, you know, you're a liar. And the story continues, and the Buddha convinces him that he's not lying. But this is a very, this just sets the scene for what is at stake in the Buddha accepting food and telling the women who are giving food, you are an independent agent. Your husband might have provided the food for the family, but you get the merit of making this donation to me. So we're in a spiritual context where, you know, in a Brahminical setting, in the setting that the Buddha was operating in, the, women, the wife's function was to assist the man if the man had religious duties, supporting role. And here the Buddha was saying, forget about a supporting role. You generated the merit that will at some point in the future lead you to become an enlightened being. So quite a powerful intervention. We see a similar story in another setting, also with a Pratyeka Buddha, as a prediction, where there's a mendicant who's wandering around town and seeking alms. And he visits the home of a wealthy woman. And she sees him, and he looks pretty, you know, ragged, not very inspiring to her. And she says, no. But the household has a servant, an indentured servant, who lives in that house. And that woman becomes inspired and asks for her allotment of food. She gets her allotment of food, and she offers it to this wandering mendicant. It turns out that that wandering mendicant is not just some ordinary beggar. That wandering mendicant is a Pratyeka Buddha. And the, one, the prince in that particular kingdom <coughs> gets wind that there's a Pratyeka Buddha in his kingdom, which is a huge honor. But he also understands that he's been denied food. But obviously, someone has given him food because he survived, he's managed. So the prince makes a, a public statement, I will honor with a boon whoever, I will grant a wish, right? I will honor with a boon whoever has offered alms to this mendicant. And so the servant woman says, I did. Now we see the same dynamic operating, but now class enters. The woman of the house says, you belong to me. That, that, that's, that's our food. So I get the credit for having done this. And now the appreciation for Buddhist teachings, the valuing of Pratyeka Buddha is in the air in that kingdom. And the servant woman says to her mistress, I, my life belongs to you. 
but my merit belongs to me, and I will not give it to you. And so the servant woman becomes the one who receives a grant from the prince. So just, just to sort of note as we're going along that we have this world in which the collective, the identity of the household or the family or the community has an incredibly important role. And within that context, those within that collective who are in relative positions of less power, a servant woman or the woman of the household, do not ordinarily do well by the position that they have in that collectivity. So the act of, a, of identifying the personal agency of a donor ends up being something tremendously empowering to people in these collectives. And this is just something to note, especially as often as we hear Buddhist teachings and we work with Buddhist understandings of selfhood or personhood, we can see that there is this distrust of, of independent individuals or of a model of a person where people are autonomous. But we see in this context the fact that they were being treated by the Buddha as having autonomous agency actually was tremendously empowering. And so that's just something for us to note as we're proceeding. So the question also becomes when we're understanding a sense of self where self and other are interconnected, what does it mean to define ourselves in terms of the other when the other is more powerful. And when gender enters in, the relationship of a one to another in which the other is more powerful is happening all over the place. So I want to shift gears to another story um, of a woman who has a life situation that right from the beginning is a little bit unusual. Normally the, the system of marriage there is that the, the girl leaves the house, she leaves the household and goes to join the household of whoever it is that her parents have given her to. Okay, So belongs to her father while she's in the house and then is sent out. Okay, So women are you know, they're passing through. They're going to be given, right? And it is an, one of the ways of talking about marriage is gift of a girl. The girl is being gifted, right? And if that sounds like we're talking about something quite alien and quite far away, who walks the bride down the aisle to pass her off to the groom. And we can see echoes of this where we might not necessarily expect to see it. But in this, in this narrative world, it's all over the place. But in this case, there's a father with a prospering, prosperous business <coughs> and only a daughter. He has a problem. Who's he going to leave it to? 
His daughter is very, very beautiful. So at a certain time, he starts having his eye out, and he notices some man who seems capable, whom he just meets for the first time, and asks him, you know, who, who's your father? Hmm? He says, I have no father. And it turns out that he's an orphan. So that's kind of a loose part himself. He's, he's exercising his profession, but he doesn't belong to another household. So the father does something unusual. He says, I will, I will you know, bring you into the business. I will give you the business if you, you know, if you marry my daughter and come to live and join this household. And he says, fine. The father dies. The mother, which very often is the case, the bride is relatively young compared to the groom. So the father dies, mother's still relatively young. And at a certain point, this woman, the daughter of that household, whose name is Utpala Varna, which means the color of an Utpala flower, which is kind of purpley blue. So she has eyes that are purplish blue. So Utpala Varna, at a certain point, becomes pregnant. And she goes into labor, and she asks her serving girl, her servant, to go and call her mom, her mother. Right? The servant girl goes to call her mother. It's kind of an unusual circumstance, so she goes rushing. You know, she's not proceeding politely, knocking on doors. And she encounters suddenly the mother in bed with the husband. So the mother with her son-in-law are having relations. So the serving girl backs out. She sits. She waits. And when finally the mother is alone, she tells her, Utpalavarna's in labor, come. So she comes. She gives birth. And after some time when the, you know, the intensity of that experience passes, she, Utpalavarna, says to her servant, what took you so long? Why were you gone so long? I was alone for a long time. And the servant girl says, may your mother and husband have a long life. She says, what are you saying? What, what's wrong? What are you talking about? Have a long life. May they live long. Like, what's going on? Why are you saying that? And she tells her, and immediately, Utpalavarna says, are you slandering my mother and my husband? How can, you know, that's, how can you say that? And she said, I'll show you. Just wait. So the servant girl waits and identifies another moment when the two of them are together. And Utpalavarna, at that point, is holding her daughter and comes into the room, and she sees them. And her life is turned completely upside down. And she has the thought, the narrator tells us what her thought is. She has the thought, of all the men in this city, my mother had to pick him? Of all the women in this city, he had to pick my mother? And she's 
completely beside herself. And then, in, in the heat of that moment, she throws her daughter at him. And the daughter falls to the ground, and her head is cut. And she's, she's completely paralyzed and, and can't move. And then she moves, and she leaves the house, and she never comes back. She just starts walking. She's just lost. Everything, the whole structure of her life has just come undone. She starts walking, and a man sees her. He's a, what they call caravan leader, which is like a successful traveling merchant. And he says to her, who do you belong to? And she says, I belong to whoever gives me food and clothes. So he says, hmm, I'll give you food and clothes. Belong to me. So she goes with him. And by the time she reaches the city that he's traveling to, she's, she's just available to belong to anyone. And by the time she reaches the next city, she's basically, uh, she's, she's dis destroyed inside. Outside, she starts a life as a sex worker. This goes on for a while. In one of the cities that she comes to, she's so available to the men that she's traveled with that the women who work as sex workers in that town notice that this big caravan has come to town and no, none of them are seeking out our services. What's going on? So they investigate and they find out she's hogging all of that business for herself. And so they approach her at a certain point and they say to her, You're in this, you have the same vocation as we do. Why don't you come join us? And she looks at them and she says, I will. And she leaves them and she joins and she's working with this community, in this community of women who are also sex workers. There's no, there's no pimp on the scene. It's a group of women who are supporting themselves that way. Okay. Uh, fast forward over a lot of very, very painful experiences. She finally ends up in a park with a group of, a large group of young men. And they're, they've contracted just her. She's available there to all of them. And she sees from a distance one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, whose name is Mahamalgayayana. Names are all kind of complicated. She sees Mahamalgayayana from a distance, and the, uh, the other, the men that she's with, treat him, say, oh, you know, he's a great monk. You know, how embarrassing for us to be doing this while he's here. And she says, you know, what, he's a man? 
And they say, no, no, no. She says, you want to see he's a man? And so she makes this dare, and she goes and she attempts to seduce him. In the long and painful part of the story that we skipped over, she's done this successfully in the past. But with Mahamal Gayayana, she's, she's done it successfully with a, a man who's a very righteous, upstanding merchant in town. She manages to seduce him even though no one else could. But here she attempts with Mahamal Gayayana, and she's not able to do it. And at a certain point, he says to her, she's, she's come to the limits of her power, her seductive power. And he says to her, you are a leather bag full of shit, hollow, pox-ridden, and easily wearied, with impurities always flowing out from the nine orifices of your body. If men knew you as I knew you, they would steer clear of you as they would a sewer in the rainy season. And there are a number of other verses going on in the same line. So as you read the narrative, it's and she says back to him, I am a leather box full of shit. Hollow, pox-ridden, and easily wearied out. He says, if men knew me as you, venerable one, know me, they would steer clear of me. So she reflects back this vision to him. She's, she's broken. And he sees that. And Mahamal Gayayana, who's an incredibly skillful teacher, starts teaching her the Dharma. Starting from this very, very frontal presentation of impermanence dismantling the body, seeing it for what it is, in a way that has a lot of echoes of quite misogynist views of women's bodies, but she's right there with him. She's right there. So he gives her this teaching, and it completely opens her mind. And she, at the end of that teaching, she says, I want to ordain. I want to join the nuns community. And he says, first you need your husband's permission. Who are the husbands? The group of young men. So she goes to them and she says, my princes, I wish to go forth and become a nun. Please grant me your permission. And they say, stop, make, stop pulling our leg. She says, no, I mean it. I'm serious. I need your permission. And they say, if you're serious, go ahead. So she informs Mahamal Gayayana that she has her husband's S apostrophe permission to ordain. He takes her to the Buddha. And the Buddha says, fine. While the Buddha is receiving her, the king of that city also comes to pay the Buddha a visit. And he sees Utpalavarna, who 
we know what her activity of sex working looks like from the outside. He sees her and he says to the Buddha, what is that prostitute doing here? And the Buddha says, great king, do not use that word of her. She is your Dharma sister and she is going forth. This is the Buddha speaking. And the king says, how can I help? And he sends a messenger to help facilitate the ordination process. So, starting to see all the complexity and all of the forces that are at play for a woman to leave each of the different contexts that are available to her. And Upalavarna is one of the few women who have been a daughter and a mother and a sex worker and a nun. And she is an incredible nun. She attains the level of arhat, which is one of the three levels of enlightened being. It's the highest level of enlightened being available to people in that context. She becomes an important leader of the nuns. And the Buddha expresses that she is the foremost in her meditative powers among all of the nuns who are his disciples. So we can fast forward to the end of her life. And Utpalavarna is one of the few women whose death story is told. She's um, she's beaten to death by Devadatta, the cousin of the Buddha who has a very serious rivalry with him. He had been attempting to separate one of the kings from the Buddha and when he realized that when the king realized that Devadatta was a sham he invited the Buddha back in and said I don't want Devadatta coming and so Devadatta was angered that he was not being received by the king so he waited at the gate and she was the first to come out and he as he began to beat her she was saying to him stop I'm in our hut If you kill me, that's one of the five most heinous acts. You will go straight to hell. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he continues, and she dies, and he does. So we have this trajectory that her life takes all laid out in the narratives. So one other story that probably is the story that everyone is most likely to have heard from this same canonical context, which is the story of the sesame seed, the mustard seed, rather, the mustard seed story. 
In some traditions, it's attributed to, uh, in the Pali tradition, it's attributed to Kisa Gotami. In our tradition, it's not. It's attributed to Partachara. Um, but the story that you, the part of the story that you know is actually not the most relevant. You might, just, do you know the Mastrati story? Is that familiar to most of you? So a woman, um, she's a young mother. She's given birth to her first son. Um, in this standard trajectory, your daughter, then your wife, and then you need to become the mother of a son in order to then have a place in the household, to be guaranteed an ongoing place in the household and a, a social reality, social place. So she has her first son, and that first son dies. Okay? And we don't have that many details for what her life was as a daughter-in-law, but we have a lot of stories of women who are basically dispensable until they've assured a male heir for that family. And there are lots and lots of advice that circulates in this in this world and in these texts that you know a daughter-in-law has to be the first one up and the last one to bed and she has to serve her in-laws and serve the family and she's basically free labor extremely vulnerable until she be until she has a male son and then okay she has a place she has a future so this young woman has the male son and the male son dies. And she, she cannot accept that reality. You know, having gained the identity of being a mother of a male child, having it taken away from her, she, she literally loses her mind. Then the story goes on to tell us how she approaches the Buddha, and he tells her, I can, she's, she, she won't let go of the child. She's still insisting that she's the mother of a male child, that my, he just, he's just sick, he's not dead. So she approaches the Buddha, and people want to keep her back. They let her approach. The Buddha says, no, let her, let her come forward. And he tells her, I can, I can cure you. I can cure your son. I can, I can cure. I have medicine for you. And she's asked what it is, and he says, in order to make that medicine, I need a mustard seed. But from a house where no death has occurred. No one has ever died. And in the, her course of knocking on all the doors and asking whether anyone had died in that household at a certain point, she recovers her sense of self. And she's able to let go of the cadaver that's her son. And she also ends up becoming a nun and an important figure in the, monastic, the females, the female nuns order. But the idea of what, how one is erased when one's role is erased, you know, as a function of a context in which you belong to someone else and the value and your identity are based on who it is that you belong to. So there's another story 
of a mother who loses her children. Um, this, and this is a story that in the Tibetan canon is said to be the story of uh, Kursha Gotami, to whom the previous story is attributed in other canons. So a lot of times the stories are circulating and there's kind of a tentative grasp on exactly who it happened to, you know, circulating in an oral context for a long time. So this is, this is how those discrepancies take place in the different editions of the canon. But she's married and has uh, two children. Her husband dies. She's attempting to travel back to her biological parents' house. And she's trying to cross a river. She has two children. She's alone trying to cross a river. So she leaves the smaller child on one side of the river. And she swims across with the older child. <coughs> she leaves the older child on the far side of the river. And this is a story that has a lot of echoes in something that happened recently to an El Salvadoran couple on the border, which some of you may remember. She leaves the older child and she goes back for the younger child. And a fox comes and picks up the younger child. And she's, she starts panicking or, or thrashing and trying to get there more quickly. The, she turns back to check that the elder son isn't misinterpreting her thrashing. And she's yelling at him, wait, wait, wait. And he misinterprets it and attempts to swim back himself. He's carried away. And the fox carries the child some distance and then drops it. But the, the, the infant also dies. So she's lost both of her children. The story continues. We fast forward. She's, by the time she gets to her parents, it turns out that her parents, she hasn't, hadn't been there in a while. Her parents are also dead. <coughs> so she's, has, she has no one. She's alone. She is trying to figure out how she can get by with the skills that she has. She meets an older woman who's also living alone, who spins wool and sells a string. So this woman takes her in, and she helps her by spinning the wool. She, the younger woman is more agile, spins finer wool. So when the older woman is taking it to her contact, who's a wool merchant or a thread merchant. And he says, this is much finer than what you usually give. What, you know, where did it come from? And the woman thinks, oh, you know, he's not married. Good opportunity. So she starts praising the young woman and says to him, she has uh, She's a single woman living in my house. 
this was spun by her. And he says, why don't you give her to me? I don't have a wife either. I'll provide her with food, clothes, and whatever else she needs for sustenance. And the mother says, wait a while. I'll ask her and let you know what she says. So the older woman goes back to the younger woman and tells her what has happened and praises all the qualities of this young, he's a weaver, and says, you know, he doesn't have a wife and you should really accept this offer. It's a good offer. And the woman says, stop. Don't say that. I have come, I've had nothing but grief on that household path. I want nothing to do with it. No matter what happens, I will not go back to that. And the older woman says to her, daughter, a woman without support is living in a place of suffering. Men who are strangers will take advantage of you. So consider this carefully and accept this offer. She absolutely refuses. But the older woman feels that she knows what's best. She goes back. She accepts the offer. She arranges the marriage. And before you know it, that woman is again living in the household of that man. And as the text tells us, the weaver was harsh and unstable and was continually enraged and beat her with his fists and with a stick. So she ends up in an abusive situation with him. It escalates and escalates and escalates. She has a son by him, and that son ends up being killed in another incident of domestic violence. And then she just leaves. Then she's just gone. She eventually meets the Buddha and becomes an important teacher and how she teaches, so her life story is narrated in multiple places because she tells her life story to other women. And it's a story of suffering. So I want to shift to the story of an important figure in these texts, in this tradition, an important female disciple of the Buddha who doesn't become a nun. Her name is Amrapali. Amra is mango. Amrapali. So she's incredibly beautiful. And the city that she lives in is Vaishali, which is quite possibly one of the first closest versions of a democracy as there was at that time. It has 
a, a, a rule by council. And in that system, she, her father is functioning. She's so beautiful that a large range of powerful men want to take her as their bride. And this puts a father in a very difficult position. He will make enemies, and they will be powerful enemies no matter who he chooses. So he decides, ruled by council, I'll put this question to the council. Let them be responsible for the hard feelings that will inevitably happen when I make a choice. So he goes to the council and he says, my daughter's incredibly beautiful. She's attracted the attention of all these powerful men. I don't know who to marry her to. Please, you make the decision. And they say to her, well, in this town, we have a rule that if a woman is really exceptionally beautiful, she should belong to the town. That way there's no hard feelings, there's no fighting. She's available to everyone. So this is a rule that they've made. And they say to the father, bring her here. Let's get a look at her. So the father brings his young daughter into the council. And they look at her from all sides. So it doesn't say whether they make her turn around slowly so everyone can see her from all sides, or whether all of these men are circling around her. It's not clear. But what is clear is that she is the object of the gaze of all of these men. So she goes through this experience. She's led back out. And the council tell her father, that is a jewel of a woman. Jewel, jewels of women belong to the town. And her father's completely distraught. And he goes home, and he's sitting with his cheek in his hand. And she comes up to him, and she says, Father, why are you sitting with your cheek in your hand? What's wrong? And he says to her, the assembly, the assembly had already made a rule in the past that a jewel of a woman is to be used by the assembly. And since you are a jewel of a woman, I am powerless. So Amrapali says to her father, don't worry. I'll go with them under five conditions. And she stipulates five conditions. Only one customer at a time. Only one man can enter her house at a time. Whole other list of conditions stipulating how she's going to be treated, including her fee, which is 500 gold coins, which is the highest fee that you ever get quoted in these texts. A big amount, it's always 500 gold coins, gold karshapana coins. So she makes, she, she who is, belongs to someone who's powerless, who herself is even less than that p amount of powerless, finds a way 
to recover some agency, and she stipulates it, and her father takes those conditions to the assembly, and they say, that's reasonable. You know, one man at a time, that seems fair. No one can enter to search her household, ever. No one can come in and just invade and search, and the rest of these rules. So they accept. So she's a, quite a remarkable woman to come up with this. She's there doing her, you know, carrying out this profession. And all the men who come to her are unable to consummate what it is that they've come for. They're completely rendered impotent by her. Text doesn't explain why. It just says that this is going on. And Amrapali says to herself, these are not men. I have to come up with a plan. So just keeping in mind that this is a city, this is its own territory. None of the men in that territory are able to reciprocate or consummate. So she engages painters from surrounding territories. And she says to them, I want you to paint on my walls all the kings, all the leading merchants, all the most important men of the surrounding territories. So she has all the walls painted. She stays out inside until they're done. And then when they're done, she calls them. And she wants them to explain. And she dresses herself up and puts all of her jewelry on. And she goes, and she stands in front of those portraits. And she says to the painters, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? So it's a complete inversion, or almost complete inversion, of the scene in which she was being inspected. Now she's doing the inspecting. But she's still a woman doing the inspecting. So she understands herself also to be existing as an object in their gaze, even as she's turning her gaze back at them. So it goes around one by one, and she arrives at one, and she thinks someone like that would, would be able to be a partner to me. Who is that? And it turns out to be King Bimbisara of one of the surrounding kingdoms. He's the arch enemy of the people of that town. She decides him. So again, fast forwarding over many, many moments in the story, he becomes her consort, shall we say. And they have a child together. That child is named Jivaka. 
He becomes a very important monk much later on. He's an incredible physician. Um, so he's a figure that if you study these narratives, his story gets told much, much more frequently. Um, and he's eventually she has to take him out of that uh, city because he's the son of their enemy. Fast forward, the Buddha, she comes into contact with the Buddha once the Buddha is a Buddha and is circulating around. And she is incredibly inspired and respects him and starts making offerings to him. We have by now well established the role of lay donors as something that especially for a woman, is a place where spiritual agency can be taken, where she can act on her own and generate merit for herself. So she becomes an important benefactor. Many years later, the Buddha arrives on what may be his last visit to the city of Vaishali. And she's extremely eager to be the first to invite him to a meal. It's a very, you know, whose house you eat at first is a matter of a tremendous amount of social prestige. So she gets wind of it and sends an emissary first. The emissary invites the Buddha and he accepts. He continues approaching the town and the princes of the town so it's not exactly a kingdom, they're called princes. The eminent sons of that town ride out in their chariots and they reach the Buddha next. And they say, you know, welcome. We invite you to a meal. We wish to sponsor a meal for you and your assembly. And the Buddha says, I've already accepted the invitation of Amrapali. And they say to the Buddha, she's a prostitute. We are princes. And the Buddha says to them, she invited me first, and I've already accepted the invitation. I will eat first at her house. And he does. So this is an instance in which we can see in a very gentle, non-aggressive way, the Buddha is asserting that there is gender equality, that human beings, regardless of class or of profession, for him, First is first. Now, that's not to say that in the surrounding community that's how things are handled. There are, as we've already seen, tremendous sense of distinction based on gender, distinction of social position, distinction of life experiences. And the gender roles that are prevailing in society 
in a certain sense, are, are challenged just by the very presence of a nun's order. Okay, and I spent too much time telling the earlier stories, so I'll skip a few. But there are stories of women who insist to their parents that they do not want to become, they don't want to be given in marriage to someone. They want to go forth. They want a spiritual career, a spiritual life path, and in which the Buddha supports that option. The fact that that option is there, an option where a woman in her own right can pursue spiritual development, can be a leader in her own community. Just the existence of the nun's order is a challenge to the rest of that configuration. But at the same time, the nuns, when they're going around knocking, not knocking on doors, figuratively knocking on doors, requesting alms, they are doing so as women, as nuns. And when the contact is between the domestic sphere and a woman who that society sees as having her place in that domestic sphere, again, gender roles become problematic. So there are a whole series of stories in which one nun whose, uh, whose misbehavior is the cause of many of the rules being made for nuns, um, she's very smart, she's very competent, and she misbehaves quite a lot. Her name is Stulananda. Uh, Stula means plump. Nanda means joy. Plump joy. Plump delight. So um, Stulananda, or plump delight, is going on alms round. She's, she's an opportunist. She knocks on one door, and at this door, the woman of the house is completely overwhelmed. Everything is a mess. The pots are boiling over. The house is total chaos. She's completely overwhelmed by her chores. And when Stulananda asks for alms, the woman says to her, can you not see that I have no control? I can't. I can't. I'm too busy with trying to deal with all this. And Stulananda says, would you like me to show you how to do it? And she says, yes. She said, and if I do, will you give enough food for me and all of my friends back at the nunnery? She says, absolutely, definitely. OK, we have a deal. So Stulananda and the list is a kind of rapid fire list of all the domestic chores that a woman needs to know how to do. She takes out some whatever is used as scrubbing powder, and she removes the stains from this, and she's, she's all over the place, you know, like an octopus doing everything. And the place is immaculate and shining and impressive. And the housewife is like, wow, this, thank you. She gives her all the food, and Stulananda happily goes back. Now she has enough food to share with all of the other nuns, and it's good food. So the the woman's husband comes home and says, wow, did you do this? 
this is amazing. No, I didn't do it. This nun did it. And he said, well, you should keep giving food to nuns. This is great. So she says, okay, I will. The next nun to come along, or I don't know if it's the next one, but subsequently, who comes along but the nun who is the founder of the nun's order? She is the Buddha's aunt. She was married to the king, i.e. she was a queen. We know from other stories, and also from these stories, that she was a very confident, strong woman, strong queen. There's one story in which she intervenes with the king on something, and the narrator tells us, while Mahaprajapati was commanding the king, he stood at attention as if he had a staff up his spine, as he always did when she was issuing his, her commands to him. So immediately, just you can see how things were. So very imposing figure arrives at the door. And the woman is so delighted to see a nun. And she says, great, I'll give you alms if you do my domestic chores. And Mahaprajapati says to her, sister, if I didn't work as a domestic servant even in the house of the king, will I do it now that I've gone forth? Sister, not to mention that by accumulating non-virtue by speaking this way to someone who's practicing ethical conduct. Are you trying to produce the seed to be a slave? Moreover, have you ever seen or heard that someone who has gone forth would serve as a servant in a household? And the woman says, yes, as a matter of fact, I have. She asks, who? And she hears that it's Tulananda. So Mahaprachapati has already stipulated or communicated to that woman, that is not how it's done. So Mahaprachapati is part of this process of articulating what is the role of a nun? To what degree is it gendered? To what degree is it the same as the other monks? To what degree is it different? How does it differ from the role of other women? And she can explain that, but she's not the Buddha. So she takes this to the Buddha. And the Buddha issues a rule that nuns are not to perform domestic chores in the homes of the lay people. And that way, it's clear to everyone who's a nun. You don't need to be the nun. You don't need to be a, queen, a former queen. You don't need all of the class position and prestige and power, personal power that Mahaprajapati had as a strong woman, as a queen, as the aunt of the Buddha. You, it's part of the definition of what it means to be a nun. It's one of the precepts.
So that makes it very clear. So we see the Buddha intervening. So then there's another story. Again, Stulananda comes to a household where the woman is unable to give her her alms because she's trying to deal with her child who's crying and who's filthy and it's all chaotic and the woman obviously doesn't know how to care for the child properly. So Stulananda, again, the same thing. She's like an octopus. And, and it's actually very interesting because it describes what they do to remove the mucus from babies and how they clean them. It's like a mini, I can see who's not a mother here making the face. Mothers, in, 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 in Indian context, that's done with, can be done with the mouth. So you don't hurt, they don't have suction, so anyway. So she performs all of these chores for the, this woman. And again, the woman says, come back anytime you like. I will always give you lots of food. Mahaprajapati approaches that house. And again, she's asked to take care of the child. So when you imagine, without understanding what a nun is, a woman comes to your door and asks for food. What is that? That's a beggar. And a beggar, if they're physically sound, might well be willing to work in exchange for doing some chores. That's a very natural thing in this social context. So seeing a woman at the door, the association is not with esteemed spiritual figure that I can generate merit by giving food to. It's opportunity to have some domestic service. So this happens again. Again, Mahaprajapati says, sister, I have bathed the Buddha, because what she specifically asks is, please, could you bathe my baby? And she says, sister, I have bathed the Bodhisattva. After that, I wash no other child. And then the same thing, sister, where have you seen or heard of a bhikshuni washing a child in this way? as well, Stulananda. So Mahaprajapati is expressed to the woman in front of her, but again, it takes the Buddha to turn it into a precept, to regularize and normalize that prohibition. So from that time forward, all the nuns know they, they now have to say to the person that they're asking food, if they're invited to do any of those things, I'm not allowed. It's not part of this role. So it's a way of shaping a new role that's unknown, that needs to be defined in terms of how gender ends up being inserted into that role. So the the, the movement here to separate nuns away from the domestic chores, chores of women immediately has the potential side effect of devaluing the woman's sphere. I don't do that. That's for the servants. That's for the low people. Especially when you have Mahaprajapati, who herself, you know, thinking of all the different kinds of identities, she's a at the top of every single identity 
except gender. She's at the top. So the there's another set of twists that get inserted into the rules. There are other rules. Sorry, I'm moving a little bit more quickly because I just looked at the time. There are rules that monks are not allowed to have nuns wash their robes. Okay, so the monks, not just the lay people, but also the monks need to have that distinction, to have clarity around what this role implies. And the strong tendency is to read gender as the dominant identity. Okay, so you have these distinctions that get used to carve out this liberating and empowering role for women. But which identity is operative? Is it the identity of monastic, in which case I don't do those domestic chores? Or within the monastic sphere, is the operative identity, you're a woman, I'm a monk, wash my robes, dye my robes, spin my wool. So we see the Buddha having to step in again, again, and again, saying, nuns don't do that. There's a wrinkle that comes in. Monks are not allowed to have nuns wash their robes unless they're a family member. So we see all the different relations that women are contextualize within all the different operative identities. So first, the operative identity of nun separates her from certain domestic things, but then within the monastic community, again, gender comes in. Even when the Buddha is stipulating, you can't ask nuns to do that for you. The family connections end up overriding that. That can't be stopped. So I want to tell one last story really, really quickly because it's too important to skip. It's a story I'm going to tell really fast. It's a story of the first time that the Buddha taught the Dharma to women. The householder named Mahanaman comes home from teaching the Buddha, from hearing teachings from the Buddha. This takes place in Kapalavastu, which is the birth town of the Buddha. So the Buddha leaves home, wanders, gets enlightened, and goes back to give the Dharma to his community and his family. So his, the queen, is there. The teachings are going on in the afternoon, in the morning and in the afternoon. Buddha's <coughs> teaching all the time. And this man comes home from those teachings and he is ecstatic. It's, the teachings are incredible. 
and he comes home to his wife, and you can almost imagine him sort of dancing, you know, feet not even touching the ground. He's saying, am I whole the Buddha? Am I whole the Dharma? The Buddha's teachings, it's like nectar. It's pure. You know, he's going on and on. And the wife says to him, it's, Buddha's great for men, not so great for women. How can you say that? The Buddha, everything he does benefits all beings, gods and men. And she says, that's right, men. He's teaching men. He's not teaching women. And there's nothing that he can say to that. And she says to him, why don't you figure something out? You men go in the morning. Oh no, first, first her, the husband says to him, you should come too. Which is completely naive. No respectable woman will go among you know, all the eminent men of the town. And she says to him, no respectable woman will go among the eminent men of the town. He is surrounded by the king, by all the courtiers, by all the high men of the town. We would be embarrassed to go there. We would feel shy. He says, but why don't you go talk to the king and get the king to have the Buddha teach for us in the afternoon and you men in the morning? So he says, I will. He's defending the Buddha. So he goes out, and he has a thought, how embarrassing. I can't go to the king on behalf of my wife. That would be awkward. I'll go to the queen. So he goes to Mahaprajapati, and he says to her, great queen, blah, blah, blah. This is a situation, you know, the Buddha's teaching morning and afternoon. Could you talk to the king and get him to arrange it? so that men have teachings in the morning and women can come in the afternoon. And she says, I will speak with the king. So Mahanaman leaves, and the women of the town get wind of this. And they will not let Mahanaman speak for them. So they go together to the queen, and they express that this is going on. We also want to receive teachings. But it would be too embarrassing for us to go when the men are there. Talk to the king. Get the men to receive teachings in the morning, and we receive them in the afternoon. So Mahabharjapati goes to the king, and she says to him, she doesn't present it as the timidity of the women, or their shame, or their shyness. She says to the king, Women are working all morning in the household. You men go in the morning. In the afternoon, we're free. We'll go in the afternoon. And he says, <laughs> and that's the first time that the Buddha starts teaching to women. 
And we, we have the teaching and we have a record of some of the things that go on in that same narrative, but that will be for another time. So one of the things that's interesting in this story is the fact that the way that women themselves are finding their voice and are speaking. And the wife of Mahanaman, whose name is never is not transmitted in the text, we have his name, and she is known as the wife of Mahanaman. She belongs to Mahanaman. She doesn't quite get that far. But she speaks, and she speaks with a consciousness that I think nowadays we would definitely call feminist. You understand that by virtue of your gender, you are being discriminated against, and you do something about it. So she expresses, and this text, even if we are not certain when it was exactly written down, we have manuscripts, and we have ways of dating because of the narrative material, and because of a process of regularizing verb forms that took place. This text is almost two millennia old. It's as we have it. It's been around for a long time. So within that, we have also the women not allowing Mahanaman to speak for them to the queen. But we also see, finally, the intervening does have to happen at the level of king to Buddha. And so we we can see in many of the stories that, fortunately, the Buddha did intervene. The Buddha is clearly aware of gender bias. He's aware of the need to take steps. He intervenes on multiple occasions you know, to articulate an, an under, a role, a spiritual role for women that's clearly not being clearly understood by the surrounding community. It needs to be articulated and reinforced and enforced. And the Buddha is doing that again and again. But then what happens when the Buddha's not there? And that's just a question for us to kind of put out there. I think one of the themes that we can notice going through the stories is that Gender also intersects with social class. It intersects with the hierarchies that are set up in, the, in this narrative context between monastic and lay. Well, so we have a world in which gender roles are one in a number of different positionalities that are coming into play. I think the question that we have of belonging. So in one sense, we were yearning to belong. But when belonging is taking place within a collective where the other has much more power, that sets up dynamics that may not come to light if we're not specifically looking for them. Um, I think also just to recognize that the turn to community that I think many of us 
look to Buddhist texts to help us to think about in an age where individualism has brought us to really a quite catastrophic point socially and environmentally. Um, that turn to the community should not be done naively. Because when we're joining collectives where the power dynamics that are brought in by gender, by class, by race, are not openly acknowledged. Those who are in a, a disadvantaged position of power can end up losing a lot more than they gain. So these are just um, these are just kind of some entertaining stories that give us some things to think about that come from the monastic code. The first 13 volumes of the Tibetan canon is the monastic code, the Vinaya. It reflects the world of that particular vehicle, the vehicle of the disciples, the Shravakayana. When we're working or reading or practicing in the world of Mahayana Buddhism, where are some areas where we might want to be attentive to how gender dynamics can be operative? So I want to just suggest a couple of things to, to reflect on rather than not draw any conclusions, but just things, things to reflect on. When we hear teachings of bodhicitta and we have unquestioned, unexcavated, unexamined ideas of gender where in some shadowy sense there is a sense that Women should be the caretakers. They should be self-sacrificing. They should be selfless. The ease with which the social and power dynamics when a woman exists in function to the husband or the children or the others when that dynamic is there, the exhortation to altruism can be misread. It can have echoes. And it can end up being either very disempowering or quite neurotic. So when we're in a world in which, as is quite clear, the texts are written by men for men, from a male viewpoint, we need to factor in our own position in the process of reading. And so what does it mean as a woman to hear teachings on bodhicitta? What work needs to be done to ensure, especially since the presentation that's coming down is assuming a very different social position, gender identity? So what work do we need to do to take that into consideration? Then if we just think about 
the Vajrayana vehicle when we have teachings on guru devotion in which the gurus are male and the disciples are female, which statistically that's what most often is happening, not always, obviously. When you have the idea of serving the guru, when it's a woman serving a man, pleasing the guru, what are some of the dangers if we're not consciously aware of what kind of disempowering triggers can be inserted which are not visible because the texts are assuming men serving men. So those are, those are some questions to reflect on. Um, and I think, you know, the starting point is that the frame that the Buddha offered us is meant to be liberating to all. When he was there, you know, adjusting, tweaking continually as gender roles, as spiritual roles were being manifested, were being developed, he was there to adjust course. Now, who needs to do that? And I think also just as we work to have ourselves, to liberate ourselves from the restrictive element of gender roles, to, to see ourselves as free of identity, which is ultimately where we're going. As we're working towards that, you know, how do we make visible the play of gender roles in our practice. It won't happen unless we're consciously attentive to it. And I think also just to see how it is that the work continually needs to be consciously done, that we, when we're not examining, the assumptions find footholds again and again, no matter how liberating the framework is. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Maitripa College podcast. If you would like to learn more about Maitripa College, please visit our website at maitripa.org. M-A-I-T-R-I-P-A dot O-R-G. This podcast was produced by Alfredo Pinheiro, Kate McDonald, Andrew Hughes, and me, your host, Tiffany Blumenthal.